Okay, there is one sheet left for those who don't have last week's sheet. Okay. Okay, all right. Well, we're just going to leave that there in case there's someone else who might need it. Uh, Let me just give you a a brief summary of where we were last week. If you have last week's sheet, you can look over your notes, and if you weren't here last week, you can maybe jot a few notes down. Uh, But we talked about the number of meanings in any given passage (coughs) that there is but one because there's alignment between the divine author and the human author, and talked about how the human authors were only able to write and understand what God gave them. So in one sense, that was really limiting, but in another sense, that's just really profound. As Scripture writers were moved along, as prophets were moved along, they could write and understand what God gave them, but only what God gave them. And what God desired to communicate was perfectly communicated through the writers. What God wanted to get across, got across, okay? God didn't fail in communicating His message through the human authors. And the authors understood what they wrote and understood that it was God's message. Thus, there's but one meaning of a text, and it's what the author communicated, one meaning of any given text. And we talked about uh, context as you look down over your sheet, getting into the meaning of a text, discovering the author's intent. How do we get to the author's intent? Well, it requires a little bit of grammatical effort, not in the original language necessary, though that's that's helpful uh, to get in the original language. But at least in your translation, doing just basic grammar to understand sentences, to understand arguments uh, that authors are making, and just basic historical accounting, too not getting into all the details of all the historical background uh, that you could possibly look at, but at least some, and that helps develop the context. So how do we discover the one meaning of any given text? Well, you look for the author's intent, and you use those tools to get there. We talked about deeper hidden meanings. Uh, My opinion is that hidden meanings are incredibly subjective and unhelpful. They seek to add something to the plain reading of the text, and the text doesn't need that. And we also talked about immediate context and broader context. This is where we left off last week. If there's an immediate context, meaning you've got a verse, and you've got verses before and after, and you've got a book or a letter that it's set in, that's the immediate context of any given verse or passage. But then there's a broader context, which is the whole Bible, because verses aren't just given to us in a letter. We don't just have, say, the letter to the Colossians. We've got the whole Bible. And so we've got to figure out how this all works together. Someone gives you a verse in Colossians, okay, can you figure out what that means just by looking at the verse with nothing else? Maybe. Would it help if you had the whole book of Colossians? Well, yeah. Would it help even more if you had the whole Bible? Yes, okay. But within that really broad context of the whole Bible, we have what's called progressive revelation, and that's what we're going to focus on today. How all of this works together as Scripture builds on itself, especially across the Testaments, and I'll get to explaining that in just a moment, we have one sheet left. Who gets it? We might need to make copies. (laughs) Um, Well, Jen just got one. Robin, do you have one? Oh, no. I'm going to make a copy. Okay, or does someone know how to use the copy machine? Michaela, very good. You want to make two or three copies, please? Thank you. Okay, a copy's coming. (coughs) So today we're going to talk about 
following progressive revelation. So if you have your sheet in front of you, it's that section titled Acquiring Understanding, Following Progressive Revelation, talking about foundations and expansions in Scripture. (coughs) How many of you have seen the chronological Bible or heard of a chronological Bible? Anybody? Those are pretty interesting, right? What they try to do is take all the books of the Bible and put them in order that they were written. You open up your Bible and you got Genesis at the beginning. Genesis likely wasn't the first book of the Bible that was written. What was likely the first book that was written? Job. Job. So if you have a chronological Bible, it's going to have Job at the beginning before Genesis. Now, that's kind of interesting, isn't it? Um, and what they're doing with the chronological Bible is helping you read Scripture the way it was revealed. And there are some advantages to that, and there are some disadvantages to that. So I want to start off today by talking through the advantages and disadvantages of thinking of the Bible that way. Uh, You can think of an illustration in this way, uh, movies. There are some people who watch movies who the whole time are consumed with figuring out how it's going to end, right? They just want to know, well, because they're watching the plot develop, and they're just wanting to know and wanting to guess about what's going to happen. I've watched movies with lots of people like that, and those people drive me crazy because the way I like to watch movies is just to let it happen to me. (laughs) I just want to sit there. I want to take it in as the director and producer and writers and all those people together, put it together, and I just, I don't want to think about what's happening next. I just want to watch. And other people want to to figure it out. Okay, well, they've just introduced this guy. Oh, I bet this guy is going to do this. Okay. Neither side is necessarily right or wrong here. It's just the way we watch movies, and we have our different ways of doing that. And we can think of reading the Bible in the same way as you think of the chronological Bible. If you read the chronological Bible from start to finish, you're kind of just letting it happen to you the way that the author revealed it through history. And there are some good advantages to that. But you also have to recognize that you're a Christian living in the year 2021, and you have the whole Bible, And using the whole Bible, thinking of the whole Bible, considering the whole Bible as you read any given part of the Bible, that's pretty advantageous and helpful. But let's talk through this a little bit. Um, As you think through uh, reading chronologically, what are some of the advantages that you can think of? So say, um, you know, I've got this illustration up here of progressive revelation. As time goes on, the themes of Scripture build, the storyline that God is revealing, we get more and more details, and it's built on itself. But say you're, reading, um, say you're reading the book of Ruth, okay, and this isn't going to be incredibly accurate, but that puts you about right here on the timeline. And so as you're reading the book of Ruth, if you're going to stick to just how Scripture had been revealed chronologically, you're saying, okay, I'm going to find out when Ruth was written, and I'm just going to study that book and only the books that came before it. And I'm not going to consider things that were written after it. What are some advantages that you could see in that type of approach? How would that help you in any way? So again, imagine you've got chronological Bible sitting in front of you. You've read up to the book of Ruth. First time reading the Bible, say. Okay. So especially when you're in an Old Testament book, or something. Thank you, Michaela. Could you hand those to Robin and Roy? Uh, Especially when you're in an Old Testament book, there's not as much information that might be clouding everything that you're thinking through, okay? So you you might be a little more limited 
and the information that you have, which could make it easier to understand what's happening in the passage. Here's some other advantages. It would help you understand the book more in the way that the original audience understood the book. Because the original audience didn't have what you have, right? The original audience didn't have the New Testament, if you're in an Old Testament book. And so it helps you get into their position a little bit more and hear things the way that they would hear those things. It also keeps you from importing some notions that the author may not have had in mind. Because when you know the whole of Scripture, and again, thinking maybe back to the movie illustration, you think you know how it's going to end, you've been told how it's going to end, it's easy then to just keep that in mind the whole time as you're reading anything that comes before it. And so you're seeing everything through the lens of the end. Now, there are advantages to that and disadvantages. One of the disadvantages is that you might start importing some things into that older book that weren't meant to be read into it. Just one, per, one possible disadvantage of that. Now, if you're reading the Bible strictly chronologically and you think, again, okay, I'm in the book of Ruth, I'm only going to consider what's in Ruth or what came before it in progressive revelation. Well, there's a disadvantage to that in that that's only one part of the overall message. Okay, even though, yes, those people at that time only had that much, you have the whole message of the Bible. We live down here where the canon of Scripture has been completed. We have the doctrine of sola scriptura. And so we have the whole thing, and though we have recognized that they didn't at this time, they were just right here, we are down here, and that's good, right? And aren't you thankful that you're down there? Aren't you thankful that you live down here, and you can look through the whole Bible, and you can cross-reference, and you can hear messages that pull out themes from all across the Bible? I'm thankful. Aren't you thankful you're not guessing at who the Messiah is going to be or when He's going to come, but you know and there's certainty? I hope you are. I am. And so, we have to recognize that if we're reading the Bible strictly chronologically, well, it's only part of the overall message. And if you read Job that way, go back to that first book that was written, you're reading the book of Job, and you're strict, sticking to that strict chronological. I'm not going to think of anything that was written after Job. Well, that means you only have the book of Job. Okay, well, you could figure out some things, but there are a lot of things that are said in that book that you could use the rest of the Bible to help you understand. Now, if you are reading the Bible with the whole Bible in view, if you're reading something in the Old Testament, for instance, with all of the Bible in view, there are great advantages in that you can read the Bible more theologically, because our theology is built on the whole Bible. Our theology isn't built in just sections of the Bible. We take all of the Bible to form our theology about who God is, who man is, what salvation is, and you can have all of that in your mind as you're reading any given text of the Bible, and you should have all of that in your mind as you're reading any given text of the Bible. So you shouldn't be uh, in one of the Psalms and say, well, this seems to be clearly talking about this broad theological theme, but I'm not going to think about that because uh, I just want to be strictly in David's sandals here, and he didn't know the New Testament stuff that I know. It's okay to bring in that New Testament knowledge, and it's good to think of your full theology as you read the Bible. So that's very good and helpful. And when you read a prophecy in the Old Testament, isn't it good to read a prophecy knowing the details of how it's fulfilled? Like when Isaiah prophesied that the virgin will conceive and bear a child. It's, you could read it just with Isaiah's knowledge and say, ooh, wow, well, that could be talking about Jesus, but maybe not. We know that it's talking about Jesus because we live on this side of history. 
And so you can go back and look at that and say, well, that's, that's amazing. And bring that knowledge. Don't deny yourself that knowledge. Bring it into the text. And I know we're, we're talking on some pretty heady stuff, but we're going to hopefully get more practical as it goes on. Joe. Well, yeah, and mystery is a good word for that because the New Testament talks about things that are mysteries in the Old Testament but made explicit in the New Testament, and we're going to get on that very point. So, yes, that's, that's very good. It is, in a lot of ways, like looking at a mystery but knowing the resolve uh, or the resolution of it. <clears throat> um, there are, again, some challenges to reading with the whole picture in view. Um, with, if you're reading say Esther, the book of Esther, with the whole Bible in view, it can become easier to miss the original intent of the author of, of Esther. Because you're just thinking about how, perhaps you could be just thinking about how all this fits into your broad biblical theology. Instead of just thinking, what did the author of Esther mean to communicate by writing the book of Esther? And so you have to try to find a balance there. And again, that can be uh, difficult to, to think through and to do and to strike that balance. But that's our challenge, is we want to understand we do have the whole Bible, but when we go back and read portions of Scripture, we have to understand that the audience didn't have the whole Bible, and the author had an intent for his audience in that moment. And so we have to seek to maintain both. So today, I want us to help, help us rightly embrace progressive revelations, progressive revelation. Um, how do we do this rightly? And here are just some ideas that can help us perhaps strike a balance. We have to first realize that the earlier the revelations are, so again, Job, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, all of those, they are laying a foundation for what comes after. They, they are a foundation for the rest of the Bible. What was given initially is a foundation for what's built on it as time goes on. And there are texts all throughout Scripture with single meanings, remember every text just has one meaning. And those single meanings are never reversed or contradicted by the later text. They're built upon. So what you have are meanings added to meanings. You've got in Genesis 1 through 11, <coughs> got a tickle in my throat this morning. <coughs> I'm like our president. I keep coughing when it's time to speak. Um, in Genesis 1 through 11, you've got how the earth was created, the, um, the flood that happened, the, so you got like a new earth happening. There was a, a flood, a worldwide flood, and now you've got Noah's family that's populating the earth. Um, and when you go all the way to chapter 12, then you've got the call of Abraham. So Genesis 1 through 12, you've got this initial foundation for everything that comes after. And any good Bible teacher will tell you, if you do away with those first few chapters of Genesis, you're going to lose the whole Bible because it, it really is a foundation for the rest of the Bible. Is there anything that comes after Genesis 1 through 12 that would contradict Genesis 1 through 12? That's an easy question. No. Okay, good. No. Instead, what, what do later texts do? If they don't contradict Genesis 1 through 12, what are they doing to Genesis 1 through 12? Good. Yeah, supporting it, develop, developing that theme, that storyline that God starts at the beginning of the Bible is developed throughout the rest of the Bible. Okay. There are themes that are expanded throughout Scripture, and those are meanings added to meanings. And so our solution is this. When you go to read the Bible, and again, this is particularly important 
as we think of the Old Testament and the New Testament, how those two testaments relate to one another. Several books have been written on this. I've got a whole shelf in my library just about hermeneutics, and several of the books are just about how the New Testament uses the Old Testament or interprets the Old Testament. Okay? So it's a pretty big academic endeavor to think through this. But here are just a, ba- a couple basic principles. Number one, we want to recognize the single meaning of the text. That's the first thing we do. When we're, when we're studying a passage, and again, we'll just think Old Testament. When you're studying an Old Testament passage, you want to recognize the single meaning of the text, and you do that through discovering the author's intent. That's your goal. So you're reading through Jeremiah, And you've got this passage in Jeremiah that could take you all sorts of directions in your theology and things that you think about. It could take you all sorts of directions in how you think of God's making His story in history. You could go all kinds of directions. And perhaps all of those directions you're thinking of are good. But your first thing to do is to recognize what was Jeremiah seeking to communicate to his audience. That is number one, okay? But it's just number one. You don't want to stay there, even though that's the first place you go, that's the place you start, that's not the place that you stay. The second step is to bring in other texts that, because you have the whole Bible, and so you bring in other texts to help color in the picture of the theme that's being presented. And so uh, you've got Zechariah, who's talking about uh, the Lord is going to descend, He's going to be on the earth, His feet are going to touch the Mount of Olives, and it's going to split in two. Okay, that's pretty amazing right? <laughs> that's, that's a really amazing passage. Now, there are all sorts of things that you can think of when you're reading Zechariah 14 that talks about that, but the first thing you want to do is recognize what was Zechariah communicating to his audience and nail that down first. And then as you start to think of other passages, particularly, well, God has already come, Jesus Christ, God incarnate. He's lived of life. He's died. He's risen again, and he said that he's going to come back. And now, thinking through the lens of what we have through the rest of the Bible, we can kind of color in the picture more now, can't we? We can see a fuller picture. Well, this is talking about Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ is Yahweh, and Jesus Christ is going to descend to the earth, and Jesus Christ, His feet are going to touch the Mount of Olives, and it's going to split in two. And you can even think of other passages, Old Testament or New, where this same event is alluded to, and you can start to color in the full picture of what's being said. You can see the fuller picture of what's being said. Um, And again, when we do this, we want to make sure that no text cancels out another text. Because, again, no text reverses the meaning of another text. They exist harmoniously. And this can get really difficult. Uh, For instance, God's sovereignty and human responsibility. You've all heard the arguments from both sides where you've got, especially concerning salvation, God acting alone in salvation or man cooperating with God in salvation. You can hear arguments on both sides. And and where we struggle is this text does not cancel out this text. This one about God's sovereignty doesn't cancel out the one about human responsibility. They exist together. And what that picture looks like when you put them all together, that's the challenge. You start synthesizing those passages, recognizing, well, all these ones about God's sovereignty cancel out the ones about human responsibility. Well, that, you can't do that. And at the same time, you can't say, well, look, all these ones about man is, man is free and he makes choices, he makes decisions. Well, that obviously cancels out the idea that God is sovereign in salvation. No. You take the two, you put them together, and they exist cohesively in one picture. 
They exist harmoniously in one picture. And I'm sure you've heard religious sword fighting with Bible verses, where someone brings up a Bible verse and says, okay, this is what it teaches. And another person says, well, yeah, but what about this one? And then they, the first person fires back, well, yeah, but what about this one? And they go back and forth, and it's almost like they're talking about two different Bibles. One presents God this way, God and man this way, and, and this one presents God and man this way. And they're using the same Bible against each other, and you think, now, wait a second. It all has to fit together here because God is telling one story. God is consistent. God doesn't contradict himself. It's telling one story. And so the challenge is synthesizing this and putting the picture together. What is going on with my throat? throat) Hopefully that fixes itself before the sermon. Any thoughts or questions on that before we get into the implicit teaching section? Not on my throat, but on the other stuff. Okay. Well, we're going to do a, a little exercise here in a moment. Joseph, you want to go ahead and run back there for the thing I showed you <clears throat> earlier. Thanks. And then we're also going to get into several Bible verses as this goes on. Uh, but you see the section there, it says, implicit teachings sometimes become explicit teachings with total consistency. That's an interesting phrase, uh, but let's think through that. Let's dwell on that for a moment, and hopefully the exercise we do will help us to, to consider this rightly. Um, there are biblical themes and biblical theologies or doctrines that depend on the Bible as a whole. In fact, most Bible doctrines, I don't know if I should say most, many Bible doctrines and many themes in the Bible, you need the whole Bible to see the whole thing, okay? There's a, a good example of this as you think through monotheism, the belief that there's but one God. Do you need the New Testament to know there is but one God? No, good, good. You don't. I mean, Israel, it's very clear in God's revelation to Israel, there is but one God. Now, the Trinity, Trinitarian monotheism, one God and three persons, do you need the New Testament to develop that doctrine? Yeah, you do. Because the incarnation is a huge aspect of understanding the Trinity, isn't it? that God became flesh? Don't we have so many advantages in understanding the nature of God because we live on this side of the cross, Jesus is coming? And so, when you think about the Trinity, that's not to say it's not in the Old Testament. There are implications in the Old Testament. Little pieces of the picture are there in the Old Testament, but you need the whole of the Bible to see that and to get that doctrine, to see it explicitly. And for an illustration or for an exercise, we're going to look at some paintings. I picked three famous paintings, and I'm not into paintings, so if I know them, I trust that most people know them. And this is either going to go poorly because it's too simple or poorly because it's too hard, I got a feeling, but maybe it'll strike somewhere in the middle. But let's go ahead and pull up the first one. Here is a painting with much of it gone. Can you tell me which painting this is? Okay. Wow, someone even said the artist. Okay, so go ahead to the next one, Joseph, the, the full picture. There you go. It is Starry Night by Vincent van Gogh. Good job. So some of you got it, some of you didn't. You could see it with just the pieces, but it was definitely more implied, right? You wouldn't bet your, you know, life savings that that was Starry Night because it was still just concealed to, a little too much. Okay, let's go to the next one. <clears throat> Man, too easy. Okay, I, I had no idea if this would be too easy or too hard. Yeah, so there's the Mona Lisa. 
Okay, some doctrines in the Old Testament are very clear. As That's my whole point. No, uh, yeah, that, one, that one's pretty easy. Okay, maybe this next one will be harder. Here we go, one more. Oh, good, silence. Okay. Okay, go ahead, Joseph. There it is. Yeah. Hey, good job. All right. <clears throat> the title of it is American Gothic. That's the title of that one. So, yeah. Um, okay. Hopefully that helped as we did that to make the class a little more exciting and also to help you to um, see the, the idea here. In the Old Testament, you get these squares of the painting, right? And on a lot of things. Not on all things. Like monotheism, that's clear. But something like the Trinity, you get these squares, and if you're studying the Old Testament, just the Old Testament, you can start to get the hint that there's something more going on than just strict one God, one person. But as you get to the New Testament, you see the picture fully as it is, and you say, oh, okay, okay, Father, Son, Spirit, we get the full revelation of God, and you can see that painting as a whole, all right? And there are several doctrines that, that this is true of. The Trinity, of course, is a prime example, but the canon itself, the canon of Scripture, if you were living in Moses' time, you had no idea how many more books of the Bible were going to be written. You had no idea how many more people God was going to inspire to write Scripture. It's revealed over time, and we stand on this side, and we say, we got 66 books of the Bible, right? Painting is complete. We see it. The nature of the first and second comings of Christ. Remember the disciples were always expecting Jesus to kill the Romans and establish His kingdom, rain down fire from heaven and just establish His kingdom Right then and there? Well, then we find out through the nature of progressive revelation, over time as the storyline and details are added, we find out, well, there are two comings. And the first time he comes as a lamb, the next time he's coming as a lion. Okay? We need the whole Bible to see that picture <clears throat> in its fullness. The nature of the new covenant. All those items in the Bible or in the New Testament that are called a mystery, going back to Joe's word from earlier. All these things, we need the full picture of the Bible. <clears throat> there are several other things that fit into that, that kind of category. Now, all, with all that said, though we recognize an expansion of the themes of the Bible, the details added to the storyline, we recognize this. We also recognize there's no competition between passages. There's no competition. They exist harmoniously. And that, this is where you can get into some true heresies um, boy, I'm going to forget the guy's name. Uh, I believe, oh, who was it? It starts with an M. Er, a guy early on in the first century, his name starts with an M, um, or not in the first century, probably third century. His, his heresy was the God of the New Testament is different from the God of the Old Testament. God of the New Testament is nice and loving and sweet. He gives you hugs. God of the Old Testament, you cross him and you die, right? Now, obviously, that's a very uncharitable reading of the New Testament and the Old Testament, you see all of God's attributes in both Testaments. You do. Um, but if we start thinking, okay, well, the, there's competition because the New Testament changes the storyline, well, then you can easily end up in other places like, well, the nature of God changes. And we, we don't want to go there, obviously. We have to maintain harmony in the whole of the Bible. And the way that this harmony is rightly maintained really is a matter of 
disagreement in Christian circles. But we see it at its, its most foundational level as we have meanings added to meanings. You've got your, your meanings, those little squares of the paintings, and other meanings come in and fill up the whole picture. That's what I'm presenting to you. And as we think through that, I want to walk through these different ways of uh, interpreting the Bible. There are several, several different <clears throat> methods of hermeneutics. I've broken it down to just the three categories. There are some that list as many as seven or ten, but I'm just going to explain these three categories, and I hope that these three will help you have a, full, a better grasp on how people address these issues. Um, each of these views, I will say, is to be respected for what's there. And we all have to confess an ultimate uncertainty about all this because we're not omniscient. Right? So we're just doing the best that we can with the mind that God gave us to figure out how we're to harmonize the Bible. All right? And so uh, I just want you to understand these positions, and then I'll tell you mine and critique the other two. So the first one here is, and this is under how Scripture uses Scripture, if you're following along. So the first one is the census plenier view. Census plenier. And this takes the view, and we talked about this a little bit last week, that there are deeper hidden meanings, and they, the original articulators of this said that these hidden meanings are baked into earlier writings and should be drawn out. All right, so if you take this view, you're reading through a passage of Scripture, particularly an earlier passage, Old Testament somewhere, and you're thinking, okay, there's more going on than what I just read. There are some sort of deeper hidden meanings in this passage that should be drawn out. Uh, particularly as I have the whole of the Bible, there's something that I should be seeing that's deeper than what the author, the human author, intended. It takes a full canon. It, you have to be on this end of the spectrum to be able to interpret the Bible this way. The original audience didn't have the whole Bible, and so they could only see part of the meaning or a surface-level meaning. But the deeper meaning we have access to because we have all of Scripture, and we can go back and see the hidden meaning in, in the Old Testament and earlier passages. Now, a, a middle view here is inspired census plenier. So this one's just census plenier, and this one's called inspired census plenier. This teaches that there are some hidden meanings. Oops. Some hidden meanings. But what they do that's different is they state that these hidden meanings can only be drawn out under inspiration. So that means... The only place that we will see the drawing out of deeper hidden meanings is in the New Testament because they are inspired by the Holy Spirit to use Old Testament passages in a certain way that draws out a deeper hidden meaning. And I'm sure there have been times where you've seen a New Testament passage and they've quoted the Old Testament and you think, that's interesting, I wouldn't have used that verse that way, I wouldn't have connected that verse to that thing like that. Well, this view says, yeah, that's because there was a deeper hidden meaning in that verse or in that passage. And the apostles who wrote Scripture were able to make that connection because they were inspired. So the big difference between this view, the first one, and the middle view is that the middle view says we shouldn't try to replicate that. So we just say, okay, 
Um, the apostles did that. I don't know why they did that other than they were inspired by God. <laughs> I'm not going to try to do that. I'll let them do that. Whereas the first view would say, no, there are all kinds of types and shadows and stuff that the New Testament doesn't talk about that you can find. As you read the Bible, you can find deeper hidden meanings, seeing things that the New Testament doesn't explicitly teach on. And then finally is the single meaning view, which says no deeper or hidden meanings to any text, no hidden meanings. And additionally, because of that, no author's meaning is ever changed. So, there are no hidden meanings to any passage, even those earlier texts in the Old Testament, no hidden meanings. Therefore, no author's meaning, so, you know, go back to Ezekiel or whoever, he didn't write something with a certain intent behind that, and then the New Testament comes along and changes it or develops it more or whatever. What he wrote and what he intended, that's all there is to it. That's all there is. So, David, Solomon, whoever, wrote something and said something, and meant something, that's all there is to that passage. One meaning, and it's never changed. So that's that view. So you've got your census plenier, inspired census plenier, and single meaning passages. Now before we kind of walk through and do a, a little critique, any thoughts or questions on the approach to figuring out how, this, how the Bible uses the Bible, how the Bible quotes the Bible? And th I should say too, this is Bible college level stuff, and I'm not a Bible college professor, so you're at an extreme disadvantage. But, uh, and it's also, of course, in the morning on Sunday. But I have a lot of confidence in you. Thoughts or questions on this? Does what a lot? Yep. So, yeah, um, types is the word I think you're looking for. There are lots of types and shadows. Yeah, it, I mean, Hebrews references types and shadows a lot. In our men's lunch today, we're reading or we're going over chapter 8 of Roy Zuck's book on Bible interpretation that's about types and symbols. And if we took away the book of Hebrews, our list of the times the New Testament says this is a type, that goes way down because Hebrews takes the lion's share of that. Now, the question is, because, yes, Hebrews does that, but the question is, does Hebrews ever change the meaning in any way of what was originally given? And that's, that's where the disagreement comes in in these views. Because they would all agree, yeah, there are types that are explained in Hebrews. Everybody agrees with that. Uh, you, he points, the author points at the tabernacle or Moses or whoever and says, okay, there's a, a relationship going on between this thing in the Old Testament and Christ or the church. But does that change the original? And that's where the disagreement can come in. Does that mean that they didn't understand in the Old Testament the true meaning of that passage? Or did they understand the true meaning? And now we have a meaning added to that meaning that fills in the picture. Again, Bible college level philosophical type of stuff, but it's good to think through, isn't it? Because it does have implications for lots of our theology. You think through, um, the, again, Trinity and monotheism. 
If you run into a oneness Pentecostal, which you probably won't in Utah County, Utah, <laughs> but here's the, the argument for the oneness Pentecostal. He's going to say the Trinity doesn't exist. That's all made up. One God, one person. That's what oneness Pentecostals believe. And here's their main argument. No Jew reading the Old Testament ever would have said that God was three persons. If you were a Jew and you had the whole Old Testament at that time, you would read through and say, well, God is just one person. Therefore, no Trinity exists. Now, there's a clear problem with that, right? In that, well, we're not Jews who just have the Old Testament. <laughs> we're Christians and we have the whole Bible. And we have the whole revelation of God that creates a fuller picture. Now, with that being said, though, that we're not saying that the New Testament is at odds with the Old Testament. We're not saying that the New Testament changes anything that's in the Old Testament. We're saying that they all exist harmoniously. You need both to see the full picture. And so, uh, what they would be saying, what the oneness Pentecostals would say is, you Trinitarians, you're just changing what the Old Testament says. You're changing the meaning. We say, no, we're not changing the meaning. We can't. We, we sometimes do. We need to be careful about that. But you don't have to change the meaning of anything the Old Testament says to have a good biblical theology. You don't. So I take the single meaning view. I kind of gave myself away there. I take the single meaning view here. Um, let me walk through just uh, the issues and critiques that I have with those first two views. Uh, first, think back to the paintings. Go back in your mind to the... Uh, the last one, American Gothic, because that one we had the most trouble with. Okay, go back to that one with all the squares across the, across the screen. If you hold to this view, the census plenier view, and there are Christians who do, instead of seeing the squares like I presented them on the screen, the squares are actually colorless and in random places. The New Testament is needed to put color into the, into the squares and put them in the right place and then add the other squares to it. So they would view the Old Testament not as uh, squares that are fixed in the right place that are colored in, but actually there's a lot more work that the New Testament has to do to the Old Testament. That's the view that they take because there's a lot of hidden meaning, a lot of deeper meaning that needs to be drawn out because the New Testament is clearer and it brings color and clarity to the Old Testament. And I would say that by nature in a lot of ways, we kind of get this way as Christians can you relate to the feeling that the New Testament is clearer than the Old Testament? Can you relate to that feeling? <laughs> I know when I was a Christian, I don't have my first Bible up here. I used it Wednesday night as an illustration. But if you look at my first Bible, that last third of the Bible, those pages are a lot more worn down than the first two-thirds of the Bible, okay? And I'd say for a lot of us, we have kind of fit into that category, and there's a lot of good reason for that. You're Christians. The New Testament explains Christ. However, we have two-thirds of a Bible that comes before that last third, and it's important to uh, recognize that in its original context. The, um, thinking again back to the paintings, this middle view, the inspired hidden meaning view, it would see those squares as mostly fixed and clear, but there were some things that the apostles drew out that, and cleared up in those, in those squares as they put together the whole picture. And again, that view says, we're not to do that, the apostles did it, and we don't need to do that. And the single-meaning view sees the squares as clear and fixed, the way I presented them. 
The squares were, all, were there, and they were clear, right? That's why you could tell Starry Night right away. That's why you could tell Mona Lisa pretty quickly. Uh, because those squares were in the right place, and they were just fixed. They were, they were clear. And the New Testament Scripture writers, well, they didn't move those squares around. They didn't make them clearer, but they added their own squares to it to fill in the whole picture. Okay? So that's kind of the difference between those views. Hopefully, that illustration helped a little bit, but... Um, Maybe it didn't. Uh, the idea with the single meaning view is that the storyline of the Bible, the themes of the Bible, they're all maintained by keeping original meaning. You don't have to mess with the original meaning or any author's intent. You don't have to change any meaning of any passage of the Bible. You can keep it all and it harmoniously builds one consistent storyline. Thoughts or questions on that? I know it's heavy first thing in the morning, but it's recorded, so you can listen to it some other time if, if that's helpful, okay? All right, well, let's go through to significance. I do want us to look at several passages, the section titled Significance. This is how the meaning of a given passage carries on beyond the original audience. So this is beyond interpretation now. We've been talking about interpretation the last two weeks, and we're moving beyond interpretation, but we're not quite getting to application. Remember the four-step process, observation, interpretation, the word that I'm using, significance, and then application. And the first big idea here is that all passages of the Bible are at least teaching us about God's nature, God's character, and mankind's nature and character. You could pull up any verse of the Bible, and I did this to myself earlier this week as I was making the lesson to try to test myself out. I went to BibleGateway.com, and I just typed in a random verse that I didn't have memorized, and I thought, okay, I'm going to test my theory. Punch in a random verse, and whatever it brings back, can I find a general principle about God and or man from this? And I think it's true. I think you could pull up any, any verse of the Bible, and there will be a general principle about God or man in that verse, or both. So generally speaking, all passages are at least teaching us that. And in many ways, this is the baseline for interpretation and significance. All passages teach you some transcendent principles about God and about man. Every single passage will teach you something about that. And you're safe to stay there. If you read your Bible and you just look for the very general principles about God and man, you're safe. But you're not a good student yet. You're safe, but you're not quite a good student because there's more to it. There's more than just general principles about God and about man in the Bible. There are specific things. There's specific significance. And that's the second line there. Not all passages find their primary significance in every person of the Godhead or in every human. And I want to give you some illustrations for this. So turn to Matthew 3, Matthew chapter 3, verse 17. And can I get a volunteer to turn to 2 Corinthians 13, 14? 2 Corinthians 13, 14. Joseph? And then one more volunteer, Philippians 2. Who can turn to Philippians 2 for us? Philippians chapter 2, any takers? Thanks, Jen. All right, so let's look at the significance aspect as it relates to the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. What I've said here is that not all passages find their primary significance in every person of the Godhead. So let's look at Matthew 3, and let's start with um, verse 16, Matthew 3, 16. 
This is when Jesus is being baptized, and it says, after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending on him, or descending as a dove and lighting on him, and behold, a voice out of the heavens said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. What are we seeing in these verses? Just very generally, what are we seeing? From a thinking theologically, who are you seeing? Good. Father, Son, and Spirit. Okay, now you could read this and say, start at verse 16 with me again. After being baptized, God came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw God descending as a dove and lighting on God. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now, at a very general level, we recognize Father, Son, Spirit, each one is God, right? Whose voice was it from heaven, though? No, the voice from heaven. This is my beloved Son, God the Father, right? So, we, we recognize that when you take, say, just verse 17, well, that's a verse about the Father. It doesn't apply to every person of the Trinity. That wasn't the Spirit. That wasn't the Son. So, this is a really basic thing here. You don't equally apply the significance to every person of the Godhead. Okay, how about 2 Corinthians 13, 14? Joseph, can you read that verse for us? Okay, another Trinitarian verse. The grace of Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with you all. The love of God, is that talking about generally Trinitarian love of God? Well, perhaps, but according to that context, you've got the grace of Jesus and the fellowship of the Spirit. And then it says in between those, the love of God. We can understand he's talking about the Father's love, right? The grace of the Son, the fellowship of the Spirit, and in between there, the love of the Father. This is the fatherly affection and love of God. And so we understand in that particular verse, when it says the love of God, we're not seeing the significance generally and equally applied to each person, but particularly the love of the Father. That was 2 Corinthians 13, 14. And then, Jen, Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Can you read that for us? All right. So, who is working in us for His good pleasure? We could say generally God, but if we're going to look for the primary significance, which person of the Trinity? The Spirit. He's the one who convicts us and brings about fruit, and we walk in Him, we're led by Him, the Holy Spirit, right? So, we see there's a primary significance there for the Spirit of God. So, as you read through verses that talk about God like that, it's important to think, well, which person is being referenced? Which person? Because you don't always just want to look at the general level and say, well, God's at work. Well, that's true, okay? Again, you're going to be safe there, but a good student presses deeper, and we recognize that the Holy Spirit is at work, particularly. Okay, let's look at a, a, a few more verses as we think about how verses apply to humans. 
Leviticus 22.9. Who can turn to Leviticus 22.9 and read that for us? Leviticus 22, verse 9. Joseph, you want to do it again? Thanks. Um, and then we'll do Matthew 23.24. I'm going to leave a couple out. Uh, Leviticus 22.9 and Matthew 23.24. Okay, so the rest of you can turn to Matthew 23.24 and we'll read that together. But uh, Joseph... Could you read for us Leviticus 22.9? And, and the other verses we were looking at, we were thinking, which person of the Godhead does this a, a, have primary significance for? Now we're thinking, what people does this have primary significance for? Okay? Leviticus 22.9. Go ahead. All right. So, God is here saying, you're just, you're just, you were in the sky and you were just dropped, boop, into a verse. And you could read this at a general level and recognize, God has said, they shall keep my charge because I, the Lord, sanctify them. At a general level, do you understand something about the relationship between God and man? Well, yeah. Man is to obey God and God is the one who sanctifies man, saves and sanctifies man. But... Did the author, Moses, have every human in mind when he said, they shall keep my charge? Well, no. There's a context given to that. And so what you do is you look for the primary significance, and you find out in Leviticus 22.9, we're talking about Israelites. And you might find out we're talking about a specific section or a specific group of Israelites. And there's a specific significance about this verse for those people. And so you have to dig a little deeper to be a good student. You have to work a little harder to be a good student and to see what it is exactly God is saying, who the primary significance is for. Look at Matthew 23, 24. Chapter 23, verse 24. What if you just had this verse? You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Now, how many of you are going to say, ooh, that's me? Now, your first thing you do is, well, you guys are good Bible students, so you're thinking of the immediate context. You're, you're thinking of who this was initially said to. That's good. But you might also start thinking, yeah, and that's like these people I know or those people I know. We don't put ourselves there immediately. Uh, well, there are implications for all of humanity about this. Are there people today who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel in the type that Jesus is talking about? Well, yeah, those people are still around. But the primary significance for this verse was who? Look at the very next verse. This is who he's been talking to. Scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Okay, so now can you generally apply that verse and see significance of that verse for all hypocrites? Yes, but the primary significance was the original audience. So you're asking what people are being addressed when you're looking for primary significance. What people are being addressed? With the Trinity, you're thinking which person is being referenced. With people, it's what people are being addressed. And so it's difficult because you have some passages where the significance is totally locked in. You really can't see significance for anyone else. Think about um, in Genesis, God tells Noah, I'm going to flood the earth, go build a boat. It's hard to find significance beyond Noah for that, isn't it? I mean, now you can. Of course, Peter uses the flood, the whole picture of a flood as an illustration for baptism, and we've talked through that on Wednesday nights. But if you just take that in a vacuum, that command, Joe, what does that mean for you? Go build a boat. Well, if you, just, if you tried looking for what that means for me, you're going to get into some weird places, right? 
<laughs> yeah, the first question would be why, right? Yeah. Now, I would, I would say, though, that's a minority of verses, but there are several verses or passages that are just locked into their original context as far as significance goes. There are some significances that are given that are really broad because the initial verse is just principle-based. Think of Romans 10, 9, and 10. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. We recognize that the you there, even in its original context, was talking about all people. He was writing to the church in Rome, and he was saying, anybody who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. And so we don't have to go scratching around to figure out how do we rightly apply that verse to other people, because that's just very broad from the beginning. The difficulty are the verses that are in between, in between the Noah verse and the Romans 10 gospel call. There are a lot of verses that fall in between where it's like, well, there are some aspects of this that apply to everybody, but God was speaking to a very specific people at that time, and now you're trying to figure out how does this all work, okay? And that's looking for the principle, looking for the significance, and how broad of a brush you can paint with. And that's where it gets difficult. But, and all this ties into that. Again, I, I'm of the single meaning variety here. And so you kind of know where I am based on that and thinking through that exercise we went through with the paintings. But uh, as we wrap up, let me give you just a few thoughts for that last line. A proper understanding of a passage's significance is vital as it properly limits our application. So thinking through significance still again, you've got step one, which is observation. And that builds up to interpretation. As you observe details, observe aspects of the text, that will build up to your interpretation. So step one builds right up to step two. Interpretation, how you rightly understand a passage, that's going to inform the significance of the passage for you. That's going to inform that. Number two, the second step, informs the third step. And then here's what we find. That third step, significance, that we were just talking about, that's going to limit your application. So think of Noah, and God says, build a boat. We're pretty limited in the ways that we apply that verse, aren't we? If we rightly understand, if we rightly observe, interpret, and find the significance, we're going to be very limited in how we use that. You know, maybe, <laughs> even as a joke, it kind of feels wrong to say it, where someone says, oh, my house is flooded. We got, we got that big rain, and my sprinkler's broke, and my house is flooded. What should I do? Well, God said, build a boat, <laughs> you know, that's just a joke. That's not very helpful, right? It feels a little irreverent. Uh, and we just realize, well, that's only a joke. That's as far as you could go with significance with a verse like that. Um, yet there are other verses that just fall somewhere in that middle. And the more you rightly understand the principles there, you'll be guarded and checked in how you apply those verses. Without proper observation and interpretation, you can't begin to wrap your mind around the principles of the text. You've got to do those first two steps first. And without considering that third step of significance, a passage can just be applied in any way, and that's bad. You, can't, you shouldn't just apply any passage any way you want to. You can't do that, okay? All right. Is that my alarm, Joe? Am I done? <laughs> oh, it's okay. You're not, you're not harming anybody. You can answer it. Okay. Well, um, there you go. There was my 
Bible college lesson for you this morning. Sorry that that was heavier than last week. Uh, next week will be lighter than both of the first two lessons because we're gonna, just going to take this stuff, keep those sheets, okay? Tuck them in your Bible. We're going to take the stuff we've talked about and we're going to walk through some passages. How does, how does all this apply to the baptism debate? Should you sprinkle babies or should you only baptize those who are old enough to make a confession? Well, we're going to see if we can apply this type of thinking to that aspect of theology. And we'll look at other things too, Okay. You're just going to be a bunch of Bible eggheads after I'm done with you. Yeah. Yeah, after, you know, doing these lessons now, I, I'm doing these lessons because Todd Friel didn't. I was thinking, okay, I'll fill in the gaps of where he fell short. And now I'm thinking, okay, now I know why he didn't go there. Oh, this, is, this is tough to do. All right. Well, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, again, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word. We ask your blessing on the rest of our gathering today that you would be high and lifted up in each heart, and as we come together in our collective heart as a church, that you would be exalted. God, give us just a sweet time of fellowship, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.